in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to take a look at the history of handheld video games and electronic games. And it's um, it's a doozy, isn't it, Lauren? Uh, yeah, as it turns out, even though this has really only been happening for about 40 years now, uh, there have been many much developments, many <laughs> different uh, yeah. handheld gaming consoles. A lot of different things have come out. Uh, this is definitely going to be a two-parter, but in the interests of not going into exhaustive detail about too many things we're we're going to we're going to try to keep it snappy yeah and also we've um we're not going to mention every single handheld device that's ever been made certainly not that would be very boring yeah, um, it would also take like 20 episodes yeah and and we're going to try to do like like a bird's eye view of some of the technology that was involved but um but we might branch a little bit of the more in-depth information about that kind of stuff off into a different episode in the future right right some of these like for instance the uh i'm sure you've heard of a little obscure handheld device called the game boy some of these could be their own episode from start to finish oh easily a two-parter episode all on its own so we are really kind of giving an idea of how the whole uh, how the whole industry developed, how it evolved over time. We'll, we'll give some technical specs here and there, but really this is more of a, a history lesson than anything else. And also, we're going to go ahead and skip any of the gaming devices out there that were specifically made as unlicensed clones of other gaming devices. Uh, right. That, I think, would make an interesting subtopic. Sure. A uh, uh, separate topic. Yeah. But- but no, we're, we're not going to go into every single thing that has come out of China illegally over yeah. the past 30 years. Right. And we have talked a little bit about these sort of things. Like in our, our episode about smartwatches and digital watches, we mentioned a couple uh, that were able to play games. One of those will pop up in this discussion. So spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. And and if you would like to check out that episode about digital watches, it, it was a two parter that we recorded back in July of 2013 called Time for Smartwatches. You can tell that Jonathan titles these episodes. Uh, I got a lot of time on my hands. So that's <laughs> what I do. Uh, also, we are going to uh, to have to address one other fact, which is that. In the beginning, these things were primitive, right? I mean, these were not like the kind of advanced graphics you would expect with a handheld gaming device. Back in the day, which was back in the late 70s, we're talking about a blip that you would control to get around or fight or otherwise compete against other blips. Absolutely. I mean, this is the... the Digital equivalent of monkeys banging bones on the ground. Yeah, it's pretty much like just kind of the, the you know, everyone has to start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to be specific and say, well, what was the first handheld game? And, and keep in mind, these games were coming into prominence around the same time as arcades becoming popular and also home video game consoles becoming popular. But here's the thing about a home video game console, Lauren. It's not easy to carry around with you. Uh, no, especially not in that day when miniaturization was not so much a thing yet. Yeah, especially since, uh, I mean, you don't want to carry a TV, especially a 1970s TV around with you wherever you go so you can play this game. So these were, these were a good alternative for people who wanted to have something uh, on the go, especially, I'll tell you the best use case I know of. Parents who want to get their kids to shut up on long road trips. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yes. So what was the very 
first handheld electronic game that we know of? Uh it was actually by Mattel, which yep. is crazy to me, and and it was uh, Mattel Electronics Auto Race. Yep, and in fact, there are several different games that came out from Mattel. We'll talk about another one in just a second. Uh, and some people get the order a little mixed up, but if you were to get hold of one of these original handheld devices, and there are still some out there on eBay, and you know, collectors love these things. On the back, copyright, nineteen seventy six. And uh, it packed a wallop. It had 512 bytes of memory. That's a whole half a kilobyte. Yeah, that's that's what it had to, to work with. If you were to look at a, a, a model of these, we'll try and get some pictures together so that we can share them on social at some point. But this one in particular, it looks kind of like a big plastic brick that has you know uh, some switches and a little slider control on it. Mm-hmm. And if you were to look at the brick and look at the, the say, the upper right-hand side of the brick, there's a vertical strip that goes down that side. That would be three, quote-unquote, lanes of traffic. And so you were your job was to drive a car, which in this case was a little red blip, and that car would gradually move up this vertical strip on that right side of the game console, um, and then these other smaller red blips would be coming down the lanes. Those represented uh, oncoming traffic. And your job was to steer between those blips to try and get to the top of your that little thin strip on the right side. And then you would reappear at the bottom. And you had to do this four times. If you could get all the way to the top four times, you made four, quote unquote, laps. And your score was how many seconds it took you to get there. So a lower score was better. And in fact, uh, it had some other sophisticated controls. It had start and reset, but it was really on and off. And then it had a gear switch, which was gears one through four, which really just meant that's how fast the oncoming blips would come at you. You know, the, the higher the gear, the faster they would approach. And I actually watched a video of a guy saying, here's the strategy to this game. You position your thumb so that you do an upward motion that hits on and then immediately switches the gears from one to four because you couldn't just start in four. You had to start in one. Oh, okay. So if you could do it in one smooth motion, then you would immediately be in that fourth gear going as fast as you possibly can. And that's how you would cut down on your on your time. And they were making like times of 35 or 40 seconds and saying, (laughs) I'm really bad at this game. And I'm thinking, you know, it's a simple premise but I don't think oh, sounds... I don't have the reflexes. Oh, sure, sure. That sounds like like my horror version of Frogger. Um, uh, yeah, this the entire display was just red LED. Yep. Um, and if you're thinking that this sounds like, well, that's only one game. How is this a a portable gaming system? A lot of these early ones were a single game per system. Yeah, yeah. Just like the earliest game consoles for your home television set, mm-hmm. like the Odyssey, that was essentially Pong. Oh, right, it might have right. been, might be like t- ten different versions of Pong, but they're all ultimately Pong. Uh, yeah, and it, and it was just hard coded directly onto the computer system. Exactly, so, and that was all it would ever do. Now, 1977 marks the debut of a second game from Mattel Electronics, and this is one that I've actually played. Uh, I don't know if I owned it or not, because you're talking about a time in my childhood when I was quite young, and Lauren didn't exist yet. I did not. Uh, so this is Mattel Electronics Football, one of the really popular games. In fact, so popular that they made a sequel called, wait for it, 
Football 2. And uh, it had six control buttons. And again, you would control a little red dot that represented a football player. And you had to try and work uh, uh, your way across the yardage, the massive amount of yardage. By that, I mean nine yards to try and score against the other team. And um, it was interesting because there was a, a great interview with one of the guys who was behind the building of these things that I ran across. And he was talking about why the football players look like little bitty red dashes. Oh, why everything in that yeah. day looked like little bitty red dashes. It's because they were using calculator microprocessors. And in fact, those processors are designed to show things like little digital numbers, right? Uh-huh. So so those dots were like the segment of, of a number. Yeah, specifically the number eight. So, yes, you were actually playing as a segment of the number eight and you were going up against other segments of the number eight. And, uh, uh yeah, eventually, uh, Mattel would end up contracting with a company called National Semiconductor, which if you've been listening to tech stuff for a long time, you've heard us talk about that company. Uh, and it was to get CMOS chips rather than old calculator chips. And then they contracted with another company called Rockwell International to do the actual hard coding programming onto those chips. So that's where they started to, uh, uh, kind of make more advanced versions of these early games. Now, these games were not exactly, um, well, they had some trouble early on. See, the, the agreement here was between Mattel and the department store Sears. Uh, right. And Sears completely doubted that they were going to be popular and therefore halted production at only 100,000 units. Yep. But uh, it turned out that Sears had uh, grossly underestimated the demand for home, uh, you know, portable electronic games. And they be- they were so popular, Sears immediately realized they had made the wrong decision. So by mid-January of 1978, now keep in mind, Football came out in 1977. Mm-hmm. So, and, so these things had been on the market for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Just and kind of stagnating. Exactly. And it wasn't really, it's one of those things where no one was really sure how to market them. And, but now they were taking off. So by mid-January 1978, Sears said they wanted 200,000 units per week. Oof. Not, not 100,000 total, 200,000 every week. And then by February, they said, you know, we were wrong. 500,000 per week. So Mattel said, huh. I think we know how to make money now. Uh, yeah, that's when they started producing a whole bunch of different games. That sequel, Football 2, yep. um, and also like Armor Attack, Sub Chase, Missile Attack. Yep. Um, I think there was a Dungeons and Dragons game. There was. I, I took a look at it. It was, um, you know, again, fairly primitive. Now, now at this point, they were starting to work not just with uh, LED displays, but also LCD displays, liquid crystal displays. So this is what a lot of you, if you've ever had one of those um, little handheld games, maybe it was licensed after an existing arcade game or a cartoon or movie or something. You're probably familiar with these. They're also the ones that you would see on watches a lot of times. Uh, super cheap to, to produce. Uh, very limited in their animation. Very limited in what they could actually display. But still, compared to a little blip on an LED screen, just a little dot, incredibly sophisticated <laughs> and much less eye bleedy. I yeah. <laughs> LED displays tend to give me terrible headaches. Yeah, I I can't at, at, at that rate. Anyway. I, I also just have nightmares mem- remembering the the sound effects from football and football two. And yeah, they're they're not all pleasant memories. But uh, yeah, 1979, that's when we see the first like mate looks. I was amazed to learn that this particular technology goes all the way back to 1979. 
Uh, right. And we're talking now about ROM cartridges. Yeah. So keep in mind, those games we just talked about, like Lauren said, they were hard coded. You could not change those games out. What you bought was what you bought. But that was not the way of the future. Milton Bradley Company. Uh, yeah. One of the one of the competitors of Mattel, especially at the time and in the gaming or not gaming, but well, I guess Toys, board games, gaming toy yeah. industry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, produced this thing called the Microvision. Right. So they decided we're going to do something similar to what some of the home video game consoles were starting to do, like the Atari uh, system was was doing this creating a, a system that could play cartridges so you could switch out what game you were playing. So now you weren't buying a single game. You were buying a platform upon which to play games, which is the way most of us are familiar with games today, right? I mean, when I go out and buy a game system, I expect I'm going to play more than just one game. More than just the Xbox. At any rate, so this Microvision had a uh, a monochrome LCD, yep. uh, which was a, a screaming big uh, 16 by 16 pixel yeah, resolution. resolution. Yeah, I mean, at that resolution, you just you could pick out every single detail on that block <laughs> that was shown. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, it had a pad on it that had nine sections of interactivity on it, which was a, which a, you didn't you didn't actually just use the naked pad. That's not how this game worked. Uh, right. The the cartridges that snapped in and out of the game would include their own buttons to overlay on top of that pad. Exactly. So you can think of the cartridges as being half cartridge, half case. And then you would pop the case open and put a new case on it in order to play a new game. That would also include overlays, which were a big thing back in the 70s and 80s, uh, which would uh, increase the playability by giving... <laughs> you would have a, a different... Um, superficial layer on top of the game so it's permanent because it's an overlay it doesn't change at all but it gives the games a certain uh personality uh yeah and and also would cut down on the work that the processor would have to do Uh, you know you know give you more space to to play with your little blips and and blobs on the screen and the system itself did have a little built-in analog control knob so Mm -hmm. that you could have some some basic functionality without using the other buttons or in addition to the other buttons that any particular game would come with yeah and i i see here I didn't actually uh, see the, this note that you had added until just now, but I love this, I, this this little this little caveat about how it had serious electronics problems, including a lack of proper Faraday insulation, which means that a static charge could render your microvision inoperable, basically useless, or or at least permanently damaged in a way that it would never come back from. Same same sort of idea that when you're putting together a computer, you want to make sure that you discharge your grounded. Static electricity. And, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So same, which makes sense because when you took the cartridge off, then you have a naked platform you're exposing right there. The, uh-huh. Yeah, so that would be um yeah good. Good tip. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, yeah, and, and that's, that is probably one of the reasons why, even though the system was, was moderately popular, Milton Bradley did stop producing it only, uh, two or three years later in 1981. Furthermore, only 13 games were ever produced for the Microvision. Wait a minute. I only could find 12 games at my look. Oh, the 13th one was only available in European markets. Correct. Wow. Which is a pretty common weird wiggy thing that happens. At, yeah, there's especially some... in these early days. Although, sure. although still modernly, like like different games and different systems will only be available in Europe or in the U.S. or in. 
Japan. Really frequently only in Japan. <laughs> yeah, you'll get you'll get entire systems that are available only in a, a single region. But even within the ones that span multiple regions, there are some titles. Sometimes game publishers say this title's never going to do well in X country for Y reasons, right? And until no. basically these days, the internet proves them wrong, and someone actually spends the money to port it over. Yeah, or pirate it. Well, <laughs> more likely that. That right. One. So by by now, we're getting right into the very beginning of the 80s. And that's when we start seeing LCD technology becoming so cheap that uh, that LED displays become kind of a thing of the past. So, you know, co- companies have already been kind of uh, in- experimenting with it. But now it was um, something that they could do without having to charge huge amounts of money for relatively limited uh, devices. So we start seeing better displays and fewer of those little blip ones, uh, which, by the way, are still treasured by collectors. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, miniaturization was also reaching the point that we were seeing. I, I mean, it was a lot cheaper to produce things. And uh... yeah, and, and it also meant that we could make smaller and smaller things. So you no longer had this giant bulky brick for everything, at least not anything that was basic. And it even led to uh, one of the things we're going to talk about in just a second the the infamous digital watch games. Yes. So something you got to keep in mind is that this is the t- this is the era where everybody got into this. Mattel had shown they had struck gold with this idea. Uh, also, consoles, home consoles, were very popular at oh, this yeah. time. So yeah. so it was a huge industry. Yeah. Everyone was saying we got to get in on this. So here's just a quick list, and not even an exhaustive list, but a quick list of some t- some game companies. That got, uh, really famous for the handheld devices they produced. And you're probably going to recognize some of these names. Acclaim, Atari, Bandai, Casio, Coleco, Galoob, Kenner, Konami, Namco, Parker Brothers, Tandy, Texas Instruments, Tiger, and many, many more. I like that that was alphabetized. Yeah. Well, I took it from an alphabetized list and I was too <laughs> lazy to mix them up. Uh, in 1980, that's when we get the Casio Game 10, which was one of the watches we mentioned, I believe, in our digital watch, smart watch episodes. Uh, yeah, it was the first video game watch. Uh, it had a version of Space Invaders on yes, it. Yes, and it was like three lines of dashes that you could shoot with your little dot. Uh, but again, you use buttons on the side of the watch to control your your little your little ship and fight off against these Space Invaders, which again were just sort of dashes. Oh, and also, very important, it also told the time. Yes, uh, important side note about this watch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Also in 1980, Nintendo started releasing this entire series of of hard coded handheld video games called uh called Game and Watch. Yeah, and the very first one was Ball. Uh, yeah, really fancy. <laughs> yeah, you played as a juggler, which I appreciate being a juggler myself. Sure. Um, and the object, of course, was to keep multiple objects in the air and not let any of them drop. And you had uh, two controls, which essentially controlled the juggler's arms. Two arms. Okay. Yeah. And that's one other thing I was going to mention also was that these hard coded games, you may wonder how did they stick around long after we started getting these cartridge based systems. One of the ways they stuck around is that they could have specific controls for that game that are unique, you know, not just your little direction pad and buttons. Uh, sure. You, you, and you don't have to recode the buttons for it every time that you want to play a different game or, or learn a new controller schematic. Right. It's just that thing. And exactly. It's specialized. So it's uh, very specific. Yeah. So that way it ended up filling a niche that your generic, you know, cartridge based systems couldn't because the game control is always going to be the same 
unless you buy some sort of crazy peripheral that can also plug into it. Anyway, the Game & Watch series was incredibly popular. They produced 60 different games under that brand. Uh, only one of those was one you could not buy. It was actually a prize. You had to win it in a, in a contest type thing. Uh, and, um, and they would release uh, several different models of these over the years. Yes. Uh, eventually, starting in 1982, they started releasing games that had two screens set up in this clamshell kind of thing that yep. looks bloody exactly like the Nintendo DS, it, y'all. It really does. It, you know, you look at this and you're like, huh, all the way back in 1982, they had this idea. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was one of those that, that ended up really paying off down the line. So they had a lot of different models, a lot of different designs. Um, they also, uh, they're under different names. Like you have the silver, uh, you have the gold, uh, you have the, the multi-screen, et cetera. And then you had tabletop and the tabletop, they introduced those in 1983. They look like teeny tiny arcade machines. So I had a friend who had, uh, Pac-Man, I think it was either Pac-Man or Donkey Kong. Uh, one of the two, but it looks like a little miniature arcade cabinet. That's, that's adorable. It was probably Donkey Kong now that I think about it because it's Nintendo. So yeah, it looked like a tiny little, uh, arcade machine. So it's really a tabletop, not so much a handheld, but it, you could have held it in your hands. You just wouldn't be able to control both the joystick and the buttons very easily. But, um, but it was, you know, again, one of those, they only produced four. So I, Donkey Kong Jr., that's the one it was because they didn't do Pac-Man. It was Donkey Kong Jr., Snoopy, Mario's Cement Factory. <laughs> And Popeye. So, um, yeah, mostly notable because they had this very evocative form factor. Uh, unfortunately, in 1983, that, that was also the year that the video game console industry crashed. Yeah. It, it, we all know the story. You know, uh, the market was flooded with, with game, games and game systems that ranged in quality from pretty good to abysmal. And unfortunately, there were a lot of the abysmal category, uh, including the infamous Pac-Man Atari port and the E.T., the extraterrestrial game. So it ended up crashing that that whole industry. However, handheld games fared better than the video game consoles did. One, because they're less expensive. And two, they fulfill a different need than the home video game console. Uh, Absolutely. So very interesting. And then we also saw at this time some experimentation with cartridge-based systems, similar to what Microvision had tried. Uh, they included game systems like the Intex Select-A-Game, which I think only had five or six game titles ever come out, uh, the VTech Variety, Palm Tech Super Micro, and the Epoch Game Pocket Computer. And if you haven't heard of any of these, I guess that kind of indicates what happened. Yeah, that's that's pretty indicative. Yeah. So still, they they knew that this was going to be a thing. Like people were going to want to have a system where they could play multiple games, not just a single game hard coded onto it. But no one had cracked that code yet. Insert sting here. But uh, we'll talk about the the system that did crack that code in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so Lauren, I had uh, hinted that the next system we were going to talk about really cracks the whole problem of building a cartridge-based system that that resonates. What was I talking about? You were probably talking about Nintendo's Game Boy. Oh boy, what you know? If you want to talk about cracking the code, Game Boy remains one of the top-selling consoles of all time. Period. 
doesn't matter if you're talking handheld. I mean, if you're talking handheld, it is the it top is, absolutely. selling. But I even mean, just video game consoles, it's still one of the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and this came out in 1989, so yep. we're skipping ahead a few years. There wasn't much development on the scene. Yeah, a lot of more of those hard-coded games we had talked about. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and it was developed by Gunpei Yokoi. Yes, and Gunpei, we talked about him in a in a episode when I when uh I did an episode about the history of Nintendo, we talked about Gunpei Yokoi because he was very very uh influential at Nintendo, both for some things that were incredibly uh popular and and one thing in particular that was a notable flop. So among the popular ones were the Game Boy, which again one of the most popular game consoles of all time. Uh-huh. Uh, also Metroid. Uh, one of the most successful video game franchises. And then, hey, the Virtual Boy. Which, totally not successful. Yeah. A uh, Virtual Boy technically kind of falls into the handheld category, depending upon whom you ask. I didn't add it into our notes because I was like, I don't really think of that as a handheld. I mean, I think, anything. I think that was definitely a desktop. Yeah. Anything system. where you're wearing it and it's blocking your vision. I can't imagine that being, you know, handheld. Plus, that thing would make you sick when you're just sitting still. Can you imagine <laughs> how you would feel after five minutes of playing one of those in the back of a car? I would certainly not want to wear it around like I kind of want to wear the Oculus Rift around everywhere. I, I would be yakking like crazy, y'all. So anyway, uh, the Nintendo Game Boy ended up using four AA batteries, and it was actually uh, pretty good about not gobbling them up immediately. Uh, right. I, I think that, that like, like colloquially, most people got about 20 hours of yeah. gameplay out of it. Uh, Nintendo claimed that you could go up to 35. I'm not sure that I ever did that personally. Right. Well, but part of the reason why it was so efficient was that it was a monochromatic screen right. and, and it was not backlit. So in other words, if you were in a dark room and you turned your Game Boy on, you wouldn't know. You, you have to turn the light on. In fact, there were there were accessories that were sold where it was that little it was like a book light. Uh huh. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, it, but that meant that you didn't have to sp- spend extra power to keep a light lit. So that helped uh, conserve battery life. Uh, sure. Despite that, the resolution was pretty good. It was one sixty by one forty four. Well, yeah, way better than that sixteen by sixteen panel we talked about from a few years back. Uh, right. For the time, it was it was pretty shiny. Yeah, and it had four different shades of gray. Four. Well, by by gray, you mean like. Gray. Green to black. Yeah, but yeah. They they called it gray, but yes, it really was green to black. Gray. Yeah. And you could actually have a. You there were ports where you could link Game Boys together. That was, I mean, incredibly forward thinking at the time. Oh sure. You're talking about allowing multiple play, and it's not just I'm going to take a turn. Oh, my turn is over. Now I hand this device to you, and you take a turn. That's the way the old systems were. So to have something like this, as advanced as this, where you could potentially link together two different systems and play the same game was pretty phenomenal. Now, the original Game Boy, today, a lot of players call it the brick. It, it was pretty large. Yeah, and it uh, the way it was laid out, if you have never seen an original Game Boy, imagine a rectangle, and at the top of the rectangle is kind of a squarish screen, and below the screen is where you would find the directional pad and the two, two buttons. Two game buttons. Yeah, the B right. and the A. And so uh there was there were some problems with people playing for a long time and getting their hands kind of cramped up because the controls were right there below the screen and not to either side the way we're used to now. Mm-hmm. But uh still very innovative and I think I think it was the perfect storm in that there was a a game paired with Game Boy that together it was an unstoppable force. Do 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 do
do, do. Yeah. Jonathan, of course, is talking about Tetris or singing about Tetris, yeah. as the case may be. Yeah, singing is very generous. I thank you for it. <laughs> uh, but yes, Tetris, one of the most popular titles in video game history. And uh, I mean, we should do a, a podcast just about Tetris at some point. I'm shocked about, that you have not already. Yeah. Uh, well, we could never fit it in. Oh, no. At any rate, uh, yeah, <laughs> I even looked off like what would have been off camera for that. That's how bad that pun was. Um, at any rate, the the fact that Tetris was so popular and that the Game Boy was such a great form factor in the sense you could take it anywhere. You have this incredibly addictive puzzle game, this incredibly portable platform. It was a perfect match. I mean, when I think Game Boy, that's the first game I think of. Oh, sure. You know, I also think of some of the Mario games because those were really popular, too. But mm-hmm. but Tetris is the one. I mean, anyone I knew who had a Game Boy, that was in heavy rotation, no matter what other games they owned. So incredibly uh, forward thinking on that part, too. Uh-huh. It was also relatively inexpensive. It, it retailed for one hundred and nine dollars. Yeah. So, you know, not not chump change, but Certainly still not. we're going to talk about some game systems that came out. You know, either around this time or shortly thereafter that were much more expensive and not nearly as popular for multiple reasons. But one of them is that, you know, they cost more. So, uh, yeah, Game Boy ends up being a huge hit. It's, it's, you know, compared to today's systems, not the most powerful one, but, uh, you know, they, they made some great decisions. They, they went with the cartridge based game systems, right? which load instantly, so you don't have to worry about, you know, if you're used to an optical drive and you have to wait for a game to load. Spin up, yeah. It, that's one thing. But if you're used to cartridge-based systems, you don't even know what load time means. So it was really, really fast. And um, yeah, it got a couple of updates, uh, actually probably half a dozen or so updates before we get to the next true version of the Game Boy. Uh, right. Over the next several years, there would be a, a slimmer version that had a true grayscale screen mm-hmm. uh, called the Game Boy Pocket. And yep. uh, in Japan, there was a version called the Game Boy Lite that had a backlit screen. Yeah. So it was L-I-G-H-T, not L-I-T-E. Uh, right. But yeah, we... um. We wouldn't see a color screen update to the Game Boy for almost a decade, which gave a bunch of its competitors a really good end to the market. Yeah, or at least it appeared that way. For some of them, they they did a pretty good job. Others, like the one we're about to talk about, had a rougher start. So that same year that the Game Boy comes out for Nintendo, Atari releases their first handheld gaming system, their first like handheld cartridge-based gaming system. Uh-huh, the Lynx. Yep, L-Y-N-X. And so it's the first color handheld portable video game system, and it also had multiplayer functionality. Now, this thing, if you looked at it, was very wide. The screen was in the center. The controls were off to either side. Uh, it was originally actually called the Handy, or sometimes called the Handy Boy, depending upon who you ask, or the Handy Pack. Uh, that's because it was developed by this other company called Epix. Yeah, and Epix started shopping it around. They went to CES way back in 1989 and started to uh, to meet with other companies and say, look, we've developed this hardware. Are you interested? Nintendo said, you know, we've got our own thing. We're going to pass. But Atari said, well, you know, we really want to get back into this market. And this is this looks like it's a great way of doing it. So they partnered together and they launched this. Now, they were billing it as being much more uh, powerful than the Game Boy. It had it had that color screen. So that alone made it appear, at least on the surface, to be a better system. But there were a couple things against it. 
right? Uh, yeah, it was it was heavier. It was more clunky. Um, it was almost twice as expensive. Yeah, that was a big one. And also, they had a real hard time getting developers to make games for it that really took advantage of the Lynx's abilities, which is a story we've heard time and time again with various systems. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the the specs on this thing were pretty spectacular. It, it was on par with some of the consoles that were coming out at the yeah, time. Yeah, so... But- but, but without the developers to make the games. Yeah. Then uh, eventually they would uh, end up offering a basic Lynx system, which meant they didn't include all the connection cables you could have. Um, at, and that was about $99. But by then it was too little too late because the Game Boy had had such already a... Already trounced it. Yeah. They had already had such a, a big uh, initial uh, push. They were ahead of the game. And literally. They, would, they would try one more time with the with the Lynx 2 in 1991. Yeah. Um which which was more compact but but still didn't really ever make any headway and would eventually fade out of production over the next couple of years. Yep. Uh now in 1990, uh this was one of my favorite systems just for what it could do. Uh, I didn't own one. I had a friend who owned one. I had a lot of friends who owned games. I I got a lot of vicarious joy out of the friends who lived in my neighborhood. Uh, but this one was the NEC Turbo Express. So if you've ever heard of a video game console called the Turbo Graphics 16, this thing was a handheld gaming device that could play those games. Like you could get the Turbo Graphics 16 wow. cartridge, plug it into this thing, which I guess you can make, imagine was, it was a little clunky. You know, and also drained batteries like nothing coming. Yeah. Okay. So uh, batteries were expensive back then. They're still not cheap. So it would drain batteries really fast. But 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 at least the Turbo Express itself was modestly priced at a oh oh two hundred fifty dollars. Never mind. I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of expensive. Uh, yeah. But but it, but it did have a color display. Yep. Um. It, it had a similar to the Nintendo model, the a directional pad and two buttons. Yeah. Yeah. Very very much that standard game control. And uh, also for an additional price, if you wanted to spend more than the $250 plus the $100 or so in batteries to keep it going, you could get a uh, optional television tuner and turn it into a portable TV. So, I mean, it was it, it was interesting to me in that this was the first attempt to build a a handheld video game system that could play video game consoles like uh, a television console games and, it, and not a port. I mean, I'm talking about the exact same game. That, to me, was really phenomenal. Uh, 1990 was also the year that the first serious competitor to the Game Boy came out. And by serious competitor, I mean they did a decent job. They didn't... It wasn't that Game Boy was in danger, but they didn't just appear and then disappear. Uh, certainly not. This is the Sega Game Gear. And uh, at the time, the Sega Genesis was the leading console. So so it, it had some serious firepower behind it. Now, originally, it was uh, it was when it was top secret. It was still in development. It was not called the Game Gear. Uh, no, it was called the Project Mercury. Yeah. At the time, Sega was naming all of its different projects after uh, planets, which shouldn't come as a surprise if you owned a Sega Saturn. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Huh, yeah. Indeed. So at Check launch. That out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's kind of cool. I mean, it's, I love finding out like Apple calls all their stuff after cats. Oh, are they used to? Or are they used to? But OK, so this one cost less than the Turbo Express. It was not trying to they were trying really hard to kind of be competitive in that same space as the as the Game Boy. Uh, it was more expensive than a Game Boy because it was at one hundred forty nine dollars when it launched. Uh-huh. But but that's but that's not as as much crazy as two hundred and fifty. Yeah. Certainly, it's one hundred dollars less than the Turbo Express. Yeah, uh, it had that color screen. Uh, it was cartridge based. 
Yep. It came with a single game, um, a, a kind of replicant of, of Tetris yeah. uh, co- columns, if you remember that. Yeah, one. it was it was a puzzle based game. Mm-hmm. So it was clear they they saw Game Boy and its success with Tetris and said, let's make sure we pair this with a puzzle game so we can get all those casual gamers hooked. And then we'll be we have a license to print money. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it did, like I said, pretty well. They ended up producing uh, more than 250 games over the lifetime of the Game Gear. Uh, which was up until 1997. Yeah. Now, just like the Game Boy, we didn't mention this, but the Game Boy and the Game Gear both could produce stereo sound, but only if you plugged in headphones. Because right. they only had a single speaker. Single speaker. Yeah. yeah. So very similar in some ways to the Game Boy. And it was a good competitor against the Game Boy. However, the Game Boy eventually just wins out over the fact that it had an incredible library of games that just grew year over year. And just, uh, again, that price point seemed to be a magic spot. Now, speaking of magic spots, we're going to wrap up this particular episode right here because we've got so much more to talk about. I mean, we just got into the 1990s and uh, we've got a lot of, of different amazing video game consoles and a couple of phenomenal flops that we're going to be talking about in the next episode. But if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes, whether it be about a specific game system or some other piece of technology or a person that you really want to hear more about. Uh, certainly. If, if any of these have piqued your interest and you really want an entire episode about just that thing. Let us know. Send us an email. Our address is techstuffatdiscovery.com or drop us a line on the numerous social networks where we make ourselves at home and kick off our shoes and say, come on over and sit a spell. That would include Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 